Hey there, sweet peas. Welcome back to Friendless, the only podcast that tries to teach you how to be a better friend while I lose every friend I have. I'm your host, James Evermanko, back once again with a brand new chapter of my new novel, Out of Town. We pick back up the story with our narrator arriving at last in Calgary and doing his best to reconnect with an old friend. This was formerly two chapters that I ended up smushing together into one, which was way trickier a task than I expected. My God, editing. Editing is the actual devil. <laughs> I feel like the writing part, yeah, all things considered, isn't really that tough. Like not meant as some kind of like low-key break. It's just like kind of a matter of not stopping yourself. The real task is then taking whatever comes tumbling out of you and actually shaping it into something worth being seen off the initial page. I'm not completely convinced this section is there yet, but hey, who am I to judge? I just write the stuff. So without further ado, lean back, get comfy, set your volume at a reasonable level, and enjoy chapter seven of Out of Town titled, I really hope Brett actually likes me and isn't just being nice so he doesn't hurt my feelings. Here on Friendless. Chapter 7 Brett was a lighting designer who gave the impression that he hated lights. His shows were always infamously dark. At intermission, the most common refrain for audiences as they lined up for drinks or at the urinals was, I'm really enjoying the show, I'm just not entirely sure what I'm looking at. He was sweet and soft-spoken and sincere, had been in a band that had a couple local hits in the early 2000s during that summer where rock music was all warped bass lines and deep, melancholic crooning and all the videos were centered around experimental puppets and no-budget psychedelia. He was a bassist, had a ponytail that ran all the way down his back and kept it tied low like an absolute monster. By the time I met him, he'd chopped it all off and was dating one of my co-workers, a pit bull on two legs who spent the years I knew them grinding him down into a soft powder. I always cherished the moments at openings or house parties where he and I would bunker down in the kitchen and talk endlessly about pop culture or philosophy or whatever else popped into our thoughts between beers. As much as I wished I could say we were better friends, we weren't close. In my darker moments, I don't know if I know how to get genuinely close to anyone. When I moved away, we kept in touch here and there. We got drinks when he was in town once for a contract, and he always floated that I could stay at his place if I was ever back in Calgary. I'd randomly put his offer to the test with this trip, and he'd agreed without hesitation. So now, I was somewhere on 14th Street in the middle of 5 p.m. rush hour trying to get to his place. The Google Maps voice had told me to just stay on this road until I turned onto Brett Street, but the endless stream of cars stretched all the way to the end of the horizon, and I was panicking. It's these kind of moments where you almost wish you could be a flat earther. Maybe then you could believe all those fucks just were dropping off the edge ahead, clearing some space for the rest of us as they went hurtling down into the abyss below with their unused turn signals, their worn-out horns, their vacant stares always turned the other way as they cut you off when you're trying to cross the street. I was stuck in the gridlock of 14th Street traffic and had nothing but time to think while the hordes of SUVs and turned-down convertibles continued to cut each other off and slow the entire process down. Do people know that lane cutting is what's slowing everyone down? Like, if you just pick a lane and stay in it, you will almost always get there faster. And in turn, other people will get where they're going faster too because they aren't constantly avoiding getting sideswiped by some entitled shitheel who can't be bothered to turn their head slightly to the right when launching their two tons of steel penis consolation prizes around the road. The sun was setting by the time I arrived at Brett's. I was tired, 
already feeling burned out and I hadn't even really started the trip. I thought about Helen, somewhere in Europe at the moment. I thought about texting her, but caught myself. She hadn't replied to any of my texts for the last few days and I didn't have the heart to be ignored again. Better to pretend I was still in control of my day and go about it in whatever way I could tell myself was best for the moment. Brett lived in a little corner house with his girlfriend Charlotte. She worked as a professor teaching journalism. They'd bought the house just before the bubble blew up and homes were being sold at ridiculously inflated prices because of the COVID panic. I still have absolutely no idea how any of that works, but then I really have no idea how anyone could own a house these days, so here we are. It was a cute little home with a tiny white fence and a car park that they graciously let me leave Atticus in. I pulled up and went to unload my sack of clothes, not even getting through the gate before Brett was coming out the front door to greet me. Behind him, a brown bundle of frantic barking came shooting between his ankles, immediately latching onto my waist and sniffing my crotch. That's Tilly, Brett said, as we hugged and I tried to pry the little demon off me. She's cute, I said, meaning it, but also really hoping she hadn't been licking her ass recently, a pastime I felt more jealousy than resentment of, but still. I put my bags down in a corner and took in the rest of the home. A small living room opened up to the left, a huddle of couches making a kind of donut for company hosting. A dining set took up the back end of the room. To the right was a staircase that led up to the bedrooms, and straight ahead was the kitchen. Everything was cramped and small, perfect size for the couple who were both barely breaking five feet with change. I envied the ability to live comfortably in smaller spaces. Brett first took me down to my room in the basement so I could leave my things where the animals wouldn't root through them. The basement was freezing cold despite the hum of the heater buzzing away somewhere through the walls. The room I would be staying in would make a Spartan say, wow, you really went all out. A bed, a closet with a broken door hanging limply like it couldn't even be bothered to pretend it had a will to live, and a nightstand. That was all. Bare walls and a small window in the corner that looked out at the bottom of a fence. I hope you like it. It's simple, but cozy, Brett said. I smiled and thanked him. What would be the use of complaining about free accommodation? I threw my things down and we went back upstairs. Brett offered me a beer, but it being Wednesday, I got the impression he had no intention of having more than that. This is a trait we do not share. I don't understand people who just have a beer. Once a sip of beer has touched my lips, I cannot control myself to stop at that. It's real feast or famine stuff. Alcoholic by any other name, I suppose. But that was a me problem. We sat in the kitchen and chatted as I tried my best to nurse the beer, knowing that there weren't any others coming. Brett's two cats, siblings who were each born with a congenital defect, leaving one of them with only one functioning eye and the other completely blind, roamed the kitchen, occasionally sniffing at me inquisitively. I kept wanting to catch the blind one, Alfred, just before he leapt off the counter or shelf he'd climbed up. But every time he landed with a practiced grace and a semi-glance in my general direction that I felt communicated something along the lines of, this is my home not yours. When at last my can was empty, I nervously tried to control my urge to take another drink, but failed. As I tried to concentrate on Brett's words, I found myself dazing off into the abyss and dreaming of a new beer. Finally, when I realized I hadn't heard anything he'd said in the last five minutes, I had to cut him off and ask where the closest liquor store was. Turns out, there's one just up the hill. I threw my coat on and said I'd be right back. I needed to stretch my legs. The walk to the liquor store took me along a sidewalk wearing the tiger stripes of cracked cement and disjointed sections all resting on a sharply inclined hill. I got about a block before my breath started coming in sharp gasps and my chest began to seize. The first thoughts that began barreling through my head like a hopped-up raccoon trapped in a glass factory was that somewhere along the trip, I finally caught COVID. 
I finally done it, I told myself. I've fucked around and found out, and now I'm going to infect this unsuspecting couple who's so kindly opened their home to me, and I'm repaying them by bringing the plague in with me, and I'm going to kill them all, them and their pets. My lungs weren't pulling in the air the way I wanted them to. I kept trying to catch my breath, but my chest felt tight and constrained like someone was squeezing my sides into a corset three sizes too small. I tried telling myself it was just the incline, that I just wasn't used to even slight inclines anymore after living in flat-ass Saskatoon for four years. In an attempt to distract myself, I began imagining what it must have felt like as an early colonizer back in the day. To have wandered through the prairies and come out on the other side to see the mountains. The rocky fucking mountains. Jesus. The mouth-breathing settlers traipsing along, convinced this is just God's plantation, ripe with potential, and all this space. And then off in the distance, they see this expansive, deadly range. Like, Mother Earth actually got a horrible acne outbreak. She's got a goddamn mountain range sprouting up just before prom, and there's nothing to do about it. So now she's just going to have all her special photos ruined by this expansive peaks and snow caps. I did my best to keep calm as I walked, repeating, it's just the altitude. It's just the incline. I'm hundreds of feet higher than I've been for years. That's the trick of the highway. You think you're driving straight, but actually you're just steadily going up and up and up. And now my body was in panic mode because I was getting less oxygen than I was used to, but I was being made to do more work than I had in ages, so I was probably dying. At least that's the signal my body was sending my brain, and my brain was nothing if not gullible, so it totally believed the messages and started preparing for the end. It was a good run. My brain was yelling down at my shoulders, and my shoulders bunched up because they're always ready to tense up. It seems the only thing really that they're good at, other than weighing down my spine and over-accentuating my bad posture. And once the message is in my shoulders, it's a straight shot through the rest of my body, and now every tendon and joint and ligament was preparing for their doom, kissing their kids and telling their wives they regretted ever getting married and running off to gamble the last of their savings because there's no tomorrow coming. And then I crested the hill and spotted the liquor store at the far end of a little parking lot, and my breathing started to regulate itself slightly. The flat ground eased up on my knees, and I thought, maybe it's just the fact that I've been in a car most of the day and hadn't really eaten anything other than that stale McMuffin God knows how long ago, so I should probably just relax. The neon sign of the liquor store buzzed in the rapidly settling night, beckoning me to enter its glorious, comforting oasis. I went into the store and made a beeline for the back cooler where I found the holy grail, the box I had dreamed of for four years, a 12-pack of steam whistle bottles, along with commemorative bottle opener. The week leading up to our wedding, we would buy at least one of these boxes every night. To this day, our utensil drawer is still overflowing with extra bottle openers. We couldn't give the damn things away. Every photo we have of the day, I'm sporting a freshly shorn and bulging chin thanks to the copious amounts of steam whistle I was taking down just to deal with the stress. As I paid and walked out, I was hit with a flash of the first time I tried buying booze. It was the summer between 10th and 11th grade. I'd somehow started spending my evenings hanging out with Corey McKay, a floating member of the wannabe punk gang that smoked across the parking lot behind the high school. Corey played guitar and had his hair grown out in thin, blonde wisps that were already receding at 15. We would meet up at the end of the block and walk the bike path down into Boness, the bad neighborhood that us Silver Springers could look down on with impunity and smugness. There was a liquor store at the bottom of the hill that Corey heard would sell without checking IDs. The first try, Corey did it. He walked in with a pocket full of change and walked out with two Lucky Force 1040s. We walked our prizes to a little cliff that overlooked a golf course and sucked back our swill in triumphant but agonizing swigs. 
The beer was rotten, burning all the way down. That whole summer, we would do that routine a few times a week, drinking and watching the sunset. I couldn't ever finish a full bottle, always pouring out the last remains when it was time to walk on. Regardless, I would become blind drunk, spending the rest of the night crying over some unrequited love or whatever other topic we would get into. Corey was always patient with me on those nights, telling me that it would be all right, that we'd get through it. He eventually became a coke addict and joined the military. The last time I spoke to him in person, he was just about to ship out. I couldn't tell if he was terrified or excited. We tried to chat on Facebook once years later, but it was odd and stilted. Still, I loved him. I loved him with all the love a child can give another child who makes them feel safe who makes them feel accepted. He was always a quiet, gentle presence that I deeply treasured in those years. One day, near the end of summer, the liquor store got fined for selling to minors and suddenly it became impossible to get booze. Corey tried, but to no luck, coming out gloomily empty-handed. Now it was my turn, my first time ever in a liquor store. I remember being disoriented, unsure where anything was and what it was I was looking for. All the pathways seemed tight and claustrophobic, like they were pressing down on me and my lies. I walked to the back of the store into the cooler and picked out two lucky 40s and went to the lineup. I made it to the front, where the attendant eyed me suspiciously. ID? he asked. I tried shrugging, my face immediately deepening into a tomato sauce of shame. Uh, I don't actually have one. Oh yeah? Yeah, see, I don't drive, so I don't really have any kind of ID like that. So how do you buy booze? Well, I come here because you're always understanding. I've never seen you before. I don't usually come this late. I'm just about to get off shift. Been here all day. I don't know, man. Uh, maybe we miss each other. How old are you? 19? The trick, I've been told, was to never be 18. Be older than that so that it seems real. Sorry, bud. I gotta decline. We just got a big fine for selling to minors and I can't risk it. I'm not a minor. Uh-huh. Well, sorry, man. Maybe learn to drive and come back then? I slunk away, defeated. That night, Corey and I walked the bike path sober and somber, unsure what to do with ourselves if we weren't able to blind ourselves with swill. I got the bright idea of asking my sister to boot for us. She always swore she'd help me out whenever I needed her. So we walked back to Corey's place and I called home. My mom picked up and I had to dodge around why I needed to talk to my sister. I thought for a second about masking my voice, but I knew that wouldn't work. Instead, I said she owed me money and that I needed to collect. Why haven't I heard about this? Where are you? My mom grilled. Just at Corey's. We want to go to a movie and I want to see if we could get a ride because she owes me, I said, hoping the lie worked. Mom was unconvinced, but still went and got my sister. After a pause of silence, I heard a, what, crackled through the landline. Hey, look, can you do us a favor? But before you ask, you gotta promise not to tell mom. You want me to buy beer for you, don't you? Gobsmacked by her telepathy, I stammered a moment until I realized that our mom was definitely still listening in on the other line. Um, well, no, I wanted to see if you'd take us to the movies and pay me back what you owe me. I don't know you shit. Jesus, could you just give us a fucking ride, please? Whatever. Meet me on the corner. I don't want to figure out where Corey lives. We walked out to the main drag, and my sister eventually came burning around the corner in our mom's van. When we climbed in, the only place I could be reasonably sure my mom wasn't listening in on us, that's when I asked. So, would you be cool with buying us some beer? She clucked and sheeshed and capitulated when I offered to let her keep whatever change we had. We gave her the cash and she bought us the beer and sent us on our way. 
As she peeled off, I thought I saw her mom's other car, a white sedan, trailing behind a few blocks. We ducked down a different street and used the alleys to get to the bike path. The white sedan slowed where we had cut in but kept going. My mother was following us. Jesus Christ. The memory faded, as they always do, as I walked back down to Brett's. The images of my mother, the moonlighting private dick, slipping away into the autumn dusk. The smell of cheap gas station cigars wafted from a balcony I walked under, making me remember summer house parties friends would throw whenever someone's parents went out of town. That ringing belief that at last we were old enough to understand what life was going to be about. It seems the only ones with any confidence in their knowledge are the ones who know the absolute least. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening to the end. You are the best. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to give the show a five-star review wherever you are listening. Reviews help so much, and they are completely free. So it's a win for everyone. If you want more friendless content, sign up for the monthly Substack. You're going to get books, movies, music, and podcast recommendations, along with a new writing prompt to try out for yourself, as well as tips on how to be a better friend to yourself and your community. I do continue working on expanding the paid subscription side. I just keep getting sidetracked with my day job. But the current goal is to offer an extra longer essay uh, every month, along with some more behind the scenes content for you to be a little more engaged with the show. All that and so much more, just click the links you'll find in the show notes. But that's it for me this week, so we'll just wrap it up there. Thank you once again for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next week for a brand new interview that I think you're going to love. But I'm not going to worry about that now. Neither should you, because that is then, and this is now. So for now, I'll just say I love you, and I wish you well. Fun and safety, sweeties. <laughs>